You can be seated, and uh, again, let me welcome you. We're really glad that you are with us uh, today. Whether you're in the room with us or you are online, uh, we're thankful that you're here. Uh, it's a little different today. If you're newer to True Life, you've been around. We usually do this uh, once a year where instead of having a sermon, uh, we uh, just kind of open it up and, and take questions from the audience or the online audience and so basically, uh, you're kind of invited to ask anything, although from what Robin has told me, Robin, my wife's going to be the MC. We, we already have a lot of questions for this service, right? So if you've got a question, you may want to get it in because I don't know that we can guarantee that we can get to all of them. So you may want to go ahead and ask yours if you do have a question. You can do that. Uh, you can text 423-277-1841 if you're online, if you want to put it. I'm sorry. Uh, what? Oh, that's my number. Yeah, I don't know my wife's phone number, apparently. I gave you my number. I guess you could text it to that, but send it to 1840. Or if you're online, if you just want to put, if you'd rather do it this way, you can put it in the comment or the, ch the chat uh, feed, and the host will uh, send it to her for you. So feel free to ask your questions. Uh, just a couple quick things. Uh, if you want to communicate something else to us, let us know that you're here. If you need something from us, you got a question, we can minister to you in some way, you can text TLC guest, lower case to 94,000. Or if you're looking, now that we have the chairs with the racks underneath, you're looking at the chair in front of you. If you want to go old school, use pen and paper. There's a connection card there. You can fill that out, put in, them in the offering boxes by the doors in the back. And I uh, just want to say a quick thing about next week. Next Sunday, we're planning on doing communion and baptism in uh, the services. And so if you need to be baptized, interested in being baptized, if you've never taken that step as a believer, uh, we'd encourage you to get in touch with us. Uh, you know, you can text TLC Decision to 94,000. You can talk to me. You can contact the church office. Uh, you know, talk to me after the service and we can set up a time to talk about that this week. So before Robin comes and introduces the panel, uh, something else I want to share with you. In, in, in our style, philosophy of ministry, true life, our philosophy of ministry is that we are a church of small groups. So outside Sunday morning and what we do in missions and outreach, uh, you know, small groups are really the key to everything that we do because really most of the ministry of the church goes through uh, small groups. And a small group's a place where a group of people gather together to build relationships, kind of share life together, uh, to, to pray, to study the Bible, to fellowship to serve, to, uh, you know, reach out. I mean, literally, most of the ministry of the church happens in small groups. And so when we're blessed to be able to start new small groups, uh, that's a, a big thing. It's an exciting thing. And so we have two new small groups that are about to start. And so we want to celebrate that together and also give you an opportunity to learn about them and plug in if they would be a fit uh, for you. So Andy Roth's going to come and uh, share about the group that he's starting. And then you'll see, get some info about a ladies group on video. So Andy, come share. Good morning. I don't know if anybody already have figured out what the small group is I'm going to talk about. It's not the army. All right. So uh, my name's Andy Rott. My wife and I, Tandy, moved to Tennessee just a few short months ago. I retired out of the army uh, in 2014, moved to Florida, found out it was getting too crowded there, and here we are. Um, it's, and I tell you what, of all the places that we have lived, that we couldn't be happier to be than we are to be here in Tennessee, especially in Jefferson City in a part of this 
congregation. Uh, everybody that we've met in this place has been awesome, and I look forward to meeting the rest of you and finding out how many more awesome people there are. Uh, it's happy to be in a room full of friends. So I'm starting a small group, and I, I don't know, uh, you need, may need to know whether or not this announcement applies to you. So let me ask some questions. If you are somebody who has ever said, helmet hair, don't care, this small group may be for you. If you've ever been driving down the road and you've waved at a guy on a bike going by and you wondered, why didn't they wave back? And you just realized you were driving a car. This might be a group for you. Uh, if you have uh, ever been driving down the road and you saw a bike go by and you were looking at that bike so long you almost drove off the side of the road, uh, this might be for you. My wife has earlier was shook, shook her head because it's happened more than once. Oh, for me. But anyway, confession's good for the soul, right? And so if you have ever uh, looked at a guy on a bike and you have said, I wonder how that person could be reached for Christ, that's, this might be a place for you. Because this, this is a group that's not, it's more than just a fellowship among people who are passionate about motorcycles. It's a, a group of people who are passionate about serving Christ and finding a way to reach others in the, the community of bikers. And so it's not just for riders, it's for those who want to reach bikers for Christ. And so this is what we're going to be doing. Uh, so it's a time of fellowship, a time of growth, encouragement from one another, and it's also a time um, to talk about bikes, which is something we all like to do. But anyway, um, not only are we going to be meeting uh, as a small group, we're also going to be riding on fellowship rides. So uh, I already have one scheduled for this Saturday. So if you uh, own a bike or you know how to get on a bike that somebody else owns, <laughs> and, uh, or you know a neighbor or someone that you want to reach for Christ who is, uh, rides bikes, you can invite them to this opportunity for fellowship for people to see uh, what it's like to have fun and love Jesus at the same time. So this Saturday at 10 o'clock, meet right here in the church parking lot for our first fellowship ride. Our first meeting uh, is this Monday. That's tomorrow. We're going to be meeting every second and fourth Monday of the month. Repeat after me. The second and fourth Monday every month, 630 at my house. If you are interested in participating in this small group, let me know. Come see me. Um, my phone information is on the website as well, but I'll give you information about my home address and so on. So come see me. And I look forward to seeing you tomorrow night at 6.30 or, and or Saturday at 10. Thank you. God bless. Hello, my name is Tammy Green. Myself and Arlene Medlin are so excited to be a part of something that we think is just great that God has put on the heart of our church to begin, and that is a ladies' small group. It will begin on April the 18th at 4.30 till 6.30, and that's a Sunday afternoon. And we're hoping to build a biblical foundation with women toward a community of fully developed followers of Christ. And we hope through meeting together regularly through life applications and prayer and giving women hope and trust in Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we feel that God has put on our hearts that he wants this group to be diverse in ages. And by that, we all are, would be in different seasons of our lives. And we've gone through different griefs, different hardships. And I think it's important that we try to help minister to each other through times that you all are going through that maybe one of us has gone through and we can share what God has done in our lives and how important it is to have him in your heart when you're going through these things. And we hope to develop a confidentiality in each other where you feel that you can trust us when you say things that it will stay within our group and that we'll pray for each other and lift each other up at the same time as we build our relationship in Christ. And we look forward to seeing you. And if you have any questions, you can contact me or Arlene. Just get in touch with the church office and they will get you through to us. God bless you and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. It's time to meet our prestigious panel. Um, I'm just going to start introducing them. They can come up as I, as I do that. I'm going to start with uh, ladies first. Lori Arwood, Dr. Lori Arwood. She's the wife to Rusty and mom to Abby, Will, and Bailey and recently has a new title as mother-in-law to David. Um, she has a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, a doctorate in Christian counseling, and has been a licensed marriage and family therapist in Tennessee for over 20 years. She has 25 years of clinical experience, and she is currently on staff here at True Life um, Church. Welcome, Lori Arwood, to our panel. Next, we have Dr. Ryan Stokes. Uh, Ryan grew up in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where he met his wife, Robin, while they were attending Western Kentucky University after receiving a graduate degree from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Ryan and Robin married and moved to New Haven, Connecticut, where Ryan earned his PhD at Yale University and served as a pastor at Calvary Baptist Church. Ryan has taught Bible and biblical, biblical languages at Western Kentucky University, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is currently Associate Professor of Religion at Carson Newman University. Ryan and Robin have two sons, Seth and Sam. When Ryan is not at school or spending time with his family, he is learning how to play the banjo. Welcome, Dr. Ryan Stokes. And then last, but of course not least, um, we have Jimmy Inman. Jimmy received his bachelor's degree from Carson Newman, master's degree from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the church planter and founding pastor of True Life Church. Um, he is my husband. He's dad to Jay, Molly, and Lily, father-in-law to Nathaniel, and um, is going to be father-in-law again as Jay just announced that he got engaged. So uh, he's going to have that title for Taylor as well. Um, welcome, Jimmy Inman. We do indeed have a lot of questions. The first service, we had to get rolling a little bit. Second service, we may not get to all of them. <laughs> just saying that we've got a lot. So um, I am going to do one that was actually from the first service that I promised um, this person I would ask. So I'm going to go ahead and start with that one. Uh, what is a practical day-to-day -day thing that you can do to become hungry and active for God? Why don't we each give a short answer to that? 
and I'll go first because that makes it easier for me if I, if I go first. Then you grab the best one, right? Yeah. Well, of course. Well, you notice here, the guy without the doctorate has a Bible, a notepad, a phone, an iPad. Lori has a couple of things. Guy went to Yale. He has nothing but his brain. So this is how this works. I, 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 I would say get up in time to start your day spending time with God in worship, prayer, and Bible study at the beginning of the day. Well, that was my answer, but um, I would say those things, and I would say to um, also spend time with, just like Jesus did where he had kind of core people that he spent time with who were like-minded believers, that we surround ourselves with those kind of people as well. I don't know. This is for Family Feud. You got the top two answers, and now I'm trying to answer that. One thing that I found recently, I, I uh, so this is a little different, but but uh, I've I've prayed daily for a long time, but I've had a hard time getting to where I pray more than just oh. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, so, so, in case you didn't hear me, I, I'm I'm a loud talker anyway. But in case you didn't hear me, I've prayed daily for a long time, but I've had a hard time getting to where I pray. Uh, you know, more than just a few minutes. And so what I what I started doing is, is praying in the morning but also praying in the afternoon and then praying again at night. So I can't pray for a long time, but if I can, pr- I can pray several times in short increments. And so that's helped me develop that habit. Uh, and I know that's not exactly the answer to the question, but they took the two best answers. <laughs> okay, so I have um, the distinct privilege um, of teaching eighth graders Christian worldview. And Um, one of my eighth graders has a question. And I actually didn't think about that I could give it today, but I'm going to let you answer because I didn't have an answer. I had an answer, but I didn't think it was good enough. So um, I'm actually going to show them a clip of this in class. So um, the question is, we were talking about, uh, we've talked a lot about God and his sovereignty. And um, this one was specifically about the plagues, Um, the 10th plague specifically. His question was, why was it okay to kill um, the the firstborn um, when murder is wrong, uh, when killing you know when, when murder is wrong. So why the question is why why is that okay um, when God did it or you know and he, he just he's really actually grappling with it. It wasn't it wasn't like oh hey I've got a question to stump you. So I'd love an answer. So uh, can I tackle this one? You, you, you've done all the Old Testament ones, and then you can add to it or correct it if you want to. But Rob and I have already talked about this, so let, let me share a couple of quick thoughts. So. Um, it's a really good question. I think one of the things we have to remember is, you know, if, if, if the Bible's true, if, if, if the Christian worldview's right, and, and um, you know, that God as the creator is the giver of life, which means that he's the only one who can either take or authorize the taking of life and it be an okay thing. And uh, God as judge... Um, you know, he, he does, he will, he has the right, the authority, uh, you know, to judge. I, I think probably the, 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 the thought behind this question, though, is, okay, these are babies, these are kids, these, this is the firstborn, how's this right towards them? And so <clears throat> I think what I would say is, you know, number one, God gave them nine chances. Uh, number two, um, you know, God knows uh, their hearts. He knows the future. He knew the corruptness of that society. He knew how they were being raised. 
you know, you know, nobody's innocent. Um, you know, they had a sin nature. They would, uh, you know, be sinners. They would follow in probably in this context in the path of their uh, fathers and ancestors and continue on in uh, the same path. Also, um, you know, I would re- remind you that if you read the story that, um, you know, the Pharaoh was trying to make sure that the Hebrew babies were exposed that they died. If you remember back in Exodus chapter one or two, you know, some of the midwives were uh, kind of laying their lives on the line to try to make sure this didn't happen to try to save the children. And so if the Hebrews, if God's people continued in Egypt, uh, very likely that uh, many of their babies were going to die. And so God wasn't just indiscriminately taking life. He was taking life in order to save life in, in, in a sense. And there's also an element of justice in that because, you know, the Old Testament law talks about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, life for life. And so I think that's an element of what's going on in, in that sense. And so God as creator, giver, taker of life, uh, has the authority to judge uh, you know, normally he judges people for their, you know, specifically for their sin, but in the entire context of this, you know, the evil, the hardness of heart, um, you know, I believe God did what he had to do in order for them uh, to let his people go and also to pronounce judgment upon Egypt and their idolatry, which was a factor in this at, at the same time. That's a great answer, and I don't really have anything to add to that, but but simply to to, to complement it by saying that uh, uh, sometimes these questions come from a place of us wondering whether God is, is just or not. And that's one thing that the Bible is very, very clear about. God is absolutely just. And although we may not understand why God does everything that he does in the Bible, we, we never have to worry that God is unjust. God is completely fair in his dealings, more so than we could ever dream of being. Uh, and so that's the only thing I would add to that. Okay, uh, the next question it starts out, it's kind of a, a longer question. It says, what if you can't realize it? Like you can't comprehend any of the, anything in the Bible happened or will happen. Or in general, it's, it's not just the gospel like in general. It's like you just learn about these people in history, but something inside of you can't realize it actually happened. Like it's a barrier or a block you can't get past. You want to know you have Christ and will go to heaven when you die, but a part of you can't comprehend that anything is real besides what you see every day. I'll start if you want to add to it. Um, I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, we, we don't know who's uh, asking the question. So I would, just, I would encourage you, whoever's asked this, I mean, I, I hope you're here or online listening. I mean, I, I, this might be more of a conversation than a panel question. And so I would encourage you to reach out to, to, to somebody, um, you know, one of us or a small group leader, friend, pastor, youth leader, I don't know the age, just somebody to, to have a conversation. Um, but I mean, I, I, so I don't know if this is someone who's like, uh, you know, maybe a Christian just kind of struggling with some things or someone who's not a Christian but interested and, in, 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 you know, just feels like there's a block in, in, in getting there. You know, as someone who's been through some periods of doubt and struggle and questioning and doubting my salvation, that kind of thing, I know that this can be very real. It can be very, 
it's almost scary, maybe in a way, when it's like maybe you want to believe or you know about it, but it's just like it, it doesn't almost seem real to you. Uh, so I, I can't give a full answer because I, I don't know everything that's behind it. I think two or three things I would say is, you know, I would just remind you, remind all of us, you know, that, that faith isn't a feeling. Faith is an act of the will. It's choosing to believe. And faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. And, and, and the feelings are going to come and go. But, you know, at some point, we have to make a decision as to whether or not, okay, I'm going to stake my life on this. I may not feel it all. I may not understand it all. But at the end of the day, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for me, that he rose from the dead. And, and I'm going to, you know, commit my life to him. I'm going to follow him and trust that God will help me figure some of these things out, work some of these things out a, a, as we go. Uh, you know, once again, I, I would encourage you to talk to somebody. I, I would encourage you, you know, just to immerse yourself in Scripture uh, because God speaks through his word. And, um, you know, I would also encourage you, you know, if, if things that would help answer your questions, books outside of the Bible, you know, you read those. I could give you some recommendations, maybe even loan you some books if you'll sign in blood that you'll bring them back. Uh, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think God's truth is self-authenticating. It has the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, immerse yourself in Scripture. God will speak to you. The other thing I would say is as you do that, to ask God to guide you in the truth, ask the Holy Spirit to teach you, you know, reveal or, or ask him to, to just to reveal himself to you. But in doing that, you know, Jesus says, said basically, things in the Gospel of John, this may be a paraphrase more than an exact quote, but he basically said, God will reveal his will to the one who's willing to do his will. And, and so, you know, if, if you're surrendered and, and truly wanting to know the truth and truly willing to do the will of God, and you're surrendered in that sense, seeking him, I believe God is going to reveal himself and his truth to you. But it may not happen just easily and instantaneously. Um, you know, sometimes we've got to wrestle with some things. And, um, you know, we're a microwave culture. We want things to be easy, instant. Uh, that's not how spiritual things and our walk with the Lord works, really. There can be a lot of ups and downs with it, particularly if we're wired in a certain way. Uh, you know, some of us are just more naturally wired to maybe doubt, have questions, some more naturally just easily believe. I mean, I talked about that some last week on Easter, even within my own family. Okay, so next I'm going to actually pair a couple of questions, one that came in this week and one that came in this morning because they're, they're similar, and I think um, they, I could pair them together. It says, the first one, uh, Satan uses my past mistakes to put up a barrier between me and God. How do I defeat this gambit? And then the, one, uh, the second one, what advice would you give to someone, um, to a person who realized that they had committed a sin and asked for forgiveness but cannot stop thinking, stop thinking about the sin they committed even after asking forgiveness to the point that they think that they even deserve to die for it? So it's kinda, I think those kind of could be paired together. I think, you know, those are kind of questions about shame, so they do sort of go together. Um, they're so, and, and I think at any, if we're all honest, all of us have struggled with the issue of shame at one point or another in our lives. Um, when you go back all the way to the garden 
And, you know, the, the key thing before the fall is that Adam and Eve, you know, they're naked, they're together, they're walking with God. And, and one thing that it points out is, you know, that they were not ashamed. And so what we see is that with sin, with the fall, comes shame. Because then flash forward to right after the fall, they're hiding, they're trying to cover up everything, they're focused on what they've done, um, and, and they, they've kind of, you know, removed themselves from, from wanting God to even see where they're at. And, of course, God comes looking for them. <laughs> and, and he knows where they're at, but he asks them, you know, where are you? So part of what shame does is it, it tries to make what we've done become our identity. And so what we have to realize is that what we've done is not our identity um, for any of us because, you know, there's, we're, we live in kind of a self-help culture where, you know, we just, if we, if we believe good things about ourselves and we say all these things about ourselves and we're, we're like, you know, we're enough and all this stuff. But, and those things, there's, there's some elements of truth in there, but if it's not grounded to Jesus, it's just empty, and it's only going to get us so far. What, what makes some of that true is that because of Jesus, we're enough. In and of ourselves, we can't be enough. That's why we need Jesus. And so um, when we get focused on, you know, what we've done and past mistakes or sins or um, even things people have done to us, and we let that become our identity instead of focusing on who Jesus is and who he says we are. Um, and through the fact that, you know, I think what we have to also weigh out in some of this is the difference between guilt and shame. You know, guilt is actually a good thing. And in, in our society, you know, we're kind of taught to sort of, if everything's okay and we can just say whatever's fine, then we're removing an element of guilt. And guilt is actually convicting. And it's actually what draws us to see the need for a Savior and the need that we can't do this on our own. And we can't take care of what we have done or what we haven't done on our own. And so guilt is actually good because when, when it's true guilt, then guilt leads us to confession and confession and repentance lead us to be closer to Christ, to, to be able to be back in fellowship. What shame does is it, it leaves us stuck in what we've done, and it condemns and accuses, and it actually, just like we saw in the garden, separates us from Christ. So what's the end goal? You know, is that guilt through repentance drives us to be closer and shame separates us. So how we get out of shame-based thinking is we remember and tell ourselves who Jesus is and we focus on who he is and who he says we are and, and what he's bought for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we live in that truth. And anytime, you know, our, our, we condemn ourselves, remember there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and called according to his purpose, is we realize that if those words of condemnation, after we've repented and asked for forgiveness, then that's not from Jesus. That's not. It's, it's either from ourselves 
or it's from the enemy accusing and lying and wanting to kill, steal, and destroy. So we, we, the way out of shame is to look to Jesus, is to look to who he is and who he says we are. If I could just add one little practical application to that. I mean, th- this is something that I've struggled with at times. I mean, I tend to be more, you know, my default mode's more legalistic, perfectionistic, those kind of things. And if you're that way, this is probably going to be something of an issue. But, you know, Lori quoted part of Romans 8, 1, isn't therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, you know, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, and so on and so forth. I would encourage you, if you if you struggle with this, to memorize at least Romans eight one. I would really encourage you to memorize Romans eight one through three. And you know the Bible says Satan's the accuser of the brethren. We change by renewing our minds. The battles in our minds. So it's replacing lies with truth. And so you know when you feel this way, or or, or you think this way, or you know Satan's telling you this lie. When this comes up, when you're beating yourself up over. Uh, a sin, you know, beyond looking to Jesus, remembering, you know, he was beaten, so we don't have to beat ourselves up. But I, I would, I would encourage you, you know, when you, when you're, when this is going on the inside of you to out loud, just quote Romans eight, one, eight, one through three, uh, uh, until you have the assurance and the reminder that, okay, I'm not condemned. I'm forgiven. It's not about me. It's what Christ has done. So I think that's a practical thing you could do uh, just to, you know, help make that real in, in your life and experience. I'd like to know your thoughts on the relationship between God's saving irre- irresistible grace to the elect and free will. For one, how is humanity's free will preserved if God selects and coerces certain people with his irresistible grace and not others? On that note... If the coercion is irresistible, is that truly a free choice? <laughs> well, there's one of the great mysteries of the universe and in a question. Um, I mean, I, I'll say something, and if you guys want to add to it, because we, we may look at it a little bit differently. And, you know, th- this is a secondary issue. Uh, you know, Christians argue over this way more uh, than we than we should. It really should not be an argument. I think what's clear, and then, you know, and I think what we declare is what's clear, and then, you know, we wrestle with the tension and mystery and things. You know, in the Bible, there's not any contradictions, but there's a lot of paradoxes, like how God could be three in one, and how God could be completely sovereign, but then us have a will, um, but the Bible, you know, clearly teaches both. But I, I think you think the thing you have to understand when in talking about free will is you have to remember, you know, we have to define terms. You know, in, in a philosophical sense, we have a free will in the sense that we get to make choices. But spiritually, as Martin Luther put it, we are under the bondage of the will. Uh, we're, in, we're enslaved to sin. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so that's why that, you know, pretty much all Christians, all actual Bible-believing Christians are going to agree that nobody can wake up someday and of their own just impetus and own volition to say, hey, I think I want to be a Christian today. Uh, like I said, we may uh, uh, disagree on some of the details, but if you believe the Bible, you know, Jesus said no one comes to the Father unless he's drawn by the Spirit. There has to be some type of work of the Spirit of God 
in us in order for us to be able uh, to be saved. You know, once again, um, may agree to disagree about some of the details. For me personally, I don't really like the term irresistible grace. I prefer the term effectual calling. And, uh, you know, I believe that God does choose people to salvation, that, that the Bible talks about election and predestination, which is really good news to me because, uh, you know, it's all of God. It's by the grace of God, for the glory of God. He's doing what I could never do. He chose me before I chose him. That, that's that's the, the essence of this. And in him choosing me, he has worked in me in some way to enable me to respond uh, to the gospel. And, uh, you know, for me, and I know people, you know, want to get into more detail than this, I, I'm, I'm pretty much content to leave it at that, uh, that, you know, it's, it's the work of God because he chose me and it's by his grace from, from the end to the beginning. And, um, you know, my understanding would be is, you know, the doctrine of election is for believers, uh, like, you know, in evangelism and election are wedded hand in hand. Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, we preach the gospel and offer the gift of salvation freely to everyone we can, trusting that God has ordained the uh, ends and the means, and he's going to use that to, to save uh, those who are elect. But, you know, Dale Moody compared it, you know, one of the pictures in the Bible of salvation is, is like a, a door. You know, Jesus is the door uh, of salvation. He said, you know, when you're walking through the door sill and you look over it, what's written there is whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. But uh, that's, that's God's invitation to us. But when you get through the other side and you look over the door sill, what it says is elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So I would say God's sovereign. We're responsible. Um, it's a paradox, but it's true. But it, it, it takes the work of God to draw us to himself. Any addition? I don't have anything to add to that. I think you just said that because God made you say it, though. I would not have thought it up myself, I don't think. <laughs> okay, so since, since uh, we're this next question, does anyone get a second chance after the rapture? And is this a gray area? Okay, I'm going to start with this because it probably, this is a pastoral question, but you all jump in because you may have a different viewpoint than I do. And so, and the, the second question, is it a gray area? Absolutely. It's about as gray as it could get. So, uh, you know, sometimes when you get these questions, kind of want to go beyond just the specifics of them to use them as a teaching moment. Uh, I kind of answered this way with a different question in the first service, but it applies. Some of you may have been around True Life for a little while, may have heard us use these terms, secondary doctrine, or primary doctrine, secondary doctrine, tertiary doctrine. Primary doctrine is like the gospel, matters of salvation, uh, the fundamentals of the faith, the essentials of Christianity. Like if you don't believe this stuff, you're not a Christian. Or if you claim to be a Christian, you deny it, you're a heretic, kind of that, that kind of stuff. You know, we're talking, uh, you know, the, the inspiration, authority of scripture, the Trinity, the full deity, full humanity of Christ, uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, literal second return, uh, second coming of Christ, those kind of things. Secondary doctrine is stuff that's important, but it's not essential to salvation. So, you know, churches should take positions on it, but it shouldn't divide the larger body of Christ. Like, uh, you know, to be a member of True Life, you have to be baptized, 
as a believer by immersion. That's one of our convictions. And so that's clear cut for us. But I'm not going to say a Methodist trusting Christ, but who's been sprinkled is not a Christian. It's, it's secondary in that sense. Or, you know, we believe in a plurality of male elders. I'm not going to say that a church that has a solo pastor or has female pastors is not Christian or not of God. We just agree with that it's, or disagree with that. It's how, uh, you know, we do things at true life. It could be, somebody's used this analogy, primary doctrine is like, national borders. This is like different countries. This would be stuff you fight over. Uh, secondary issues more like state borders. Like, um, you know, we maybe have some questions about people from Alabama because their football team wins all the time or, you know, stuff. But, you know, we're still Americans. We're still in this together, that, that kind of thing. Tertiary doctrine is just stuff that just a matter of opinion. Nobody should fight over. And that could be a variety of things from worship styles to hair length to uh, how you, you know, do you have to wear a suit or a dress to come to church, stuff like that. I, I would put, you know, the details of end times in that category. So personally, what I believe, and and I would base this on 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, is that like if you've heard the gospel before the rapture of the church, I don't think you have another chance to be saved after that. I believe there are going to be people who are saved during the tribulation. Revelation is very clear about that, you know, particularly Jews as God turns his attention back to them. But even Gentiles, a lot of those people are going to be martyred. But I, I think that's for people who haven't heard the gospel. But there's a lot behind that because what I believe, you know, I believe Jesus is literally coming back to the earth. That would be the return of Christ to set up his millennial kingdom. But I believe seven years before that, the church is raptured, you know, taken to heaven. And then there's a seven-year time of judgment of tribulation in between. But that's where even where Christians agree to disagree. Some people believe there's no rapture. Some people believe it happens in the middle of that seven years or at the end of that seven years. You know, some, some people are amillennialists, don't believe there's a literal millennial kingdom. Some people are postmillennialists, you know, believing that, uh, you know, things are getting better and uh, better, you know, the kingdom's here right now, and then Jesus comes at the end of that. You know, premillennial believes that he comes to actually set up the kingdom uh, on, on the earth. So I'm pre-tribulation, premillennial, but as long as you believe Jesus is coming back, I never, would never argue with you about the details on this. I mean, there's not uniformity uh, in, in, in this at True Life amongst their teachers or small group leaders or, or that kind of thing. It, it's tertiary doctrine. So um, you got a different viewpoint on that? Feel free to share it. I think our, uh, probably the way we, we uh, believe things shake out and the specifics are probably a little different. Uh, but I think that you and I would probably agree uh, a primary issue would be the belief that Jesus is coming back, uh, that it could happen at any moment, and that it would be disastrous not to be ready for that. And uh, I, I think that's what Paul's talking about in, in First uh, Thessalonians and, uh, and, and elsewhere, uh, that, that eternity is at stake and exactly how it all shakes out. Uh, we can very, in a very friendly way, agree to disagree. Uh, but it really is important that Jesus is returning in that we are ready for that, both for ourselves personally and in our evangelistic activity. So we joked in the first...
Anytime a question has the words Old Testament in it, I just look at Ryan. I don't even I don't even look at the other two. So I'm going to look in your direction. Although it does mention New Testament too, so I don't know. But why is it that the tone from the Old Testament where there are several prayers to God from David in Psalms for God to destroy his enemies or God commanding people in the Old Testament to kill their enemies changes in the New Testament where Jesus tells us to love our enemies? Yeah, this is a, a tough one. And, and this is maybe one of those that, that we could... Uh, address better in a conversation than on a panel. Uh, but it's an important question. Um, I guess I would start off by saying that the difference between the Old and New Testament is often exaggerated. Uh, in the Old Testament, God is a very loving and forgiving God. Uh, God doesn't just care about a person's outward a actions, but cares about a person's heart. Uh, when I teach the Ten Commandments uh, in class, one of the things I point out is thou shalt not covet is one of the Ten Commandments. It's not just about stealing, but it's about what we think in our heart as well. Uh, and, and, and God is forgiving and loving. And when we, when we come to the New Testament, yes, God is forgiving and loving, but you still have, have God who's very just as well. And, and so you have someone like uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira who, who uh, are, are killed in Acts because they lie to God. And you have Revelation, which is going to involve, uh, that book talks a lot about eternal judgment. And so, so the differences between the Old and New Testament are, are perhaps exaggerated. Uh, as far as those passages in the Old Testament where where God, uh, you know, commands, you know, like like there, there are a small number of passages in Joshua where God commands the Israelites to completely wipe out a city. Uh, you have one passage like this in First Samuel as well. Uh, you also have prayers in the Psalms that these prayers of imprecation, where where uh, uh, that's just a fancy word for cursing, uh, where where you call on God to to judge your enemies. Uh, th there are several things we could say about that. One is I guess we can just be honest. There, there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. Um, and, and I think we should expect the Bible to have weird stuff. That's what revelation is. Like if, if the Bible, if God were just going to tell us things that we would have come up with on our own, then what's the purpose of revelation? Why not just let us figure it all out? Uh, so the fact that we believe that the Bible is revelation, that should lead us to expect that there's going to be some strange stuff in it. Uh, another thing that I would say is, is one of the, the great things of the Bible is it addresses the people in their own culture. It's very historically rooted. And some of these things are based on ancient practices of warfare uh, and, and ancient kinds of prayer. And we should expect to find these sorts of things in the Bible. If we didn't, we would wonder, is, was the Bible really written thousands of years ago like it said it was? Because there's nothing in it at all that connects it with these, these uh, ancient cultures. Uh, and then finally, this is probably the most important thing I would say. Nowhere in the Bible does God command us to kill others. Um, we do have a few stories where God commands the Israelites to do that, uh, but those shouldn't be interpreted in such a way that it, it leads us to think, oh, we should do something like that again today, no matter how much we disagree with someone. Uh, that, that's not what these passages are teaching us, us to do. Uh, and uh, one of the things I really like about the Psalms of, of imprecations, those are so honest. That's really how we feel sometimes. We, we really, uh, we, we've suffered uh, greatly because of a decision that someone else has made, because of someone else's sin and not because of our own, and it's caused us so much pain, and we cry out to God for help. Um, on the other hand, these psalms, the, the, these, are, these are prayers prayed by people who are not taking justice into their own hands. These are people crying out to God uh, to take care of justice. Uh, these are also prayers that, that I don't think that these are where you should camp out as a Christian. Uh, even though you may feel this way sometime, wanting God to accomplish justice, I, I think that the Bible teaches that a better way is to pray what Jesus prayed or what Stephen prayed in Acts. 
uh, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so although we may want God to accomplish justice sometimes, that's, and, and that's an honest place to be in a place where we all find ourselves as Christians, we don't want to live there. I think we want to move on to the better place of, of asking God to forgive the people who have wronged us. I think even along with that, though, you know, even in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 12, Paul, I think quoting from the Old Testament, said, you know, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And I think even part of what goes into forgiving someone is you're kind of letting them off your hook, realizing they're still on God's hook, trusting that God, who is just, is ultimately going to set all things right, and he is going to judge and, and, and deal with sin. So, you know, out of that background, that's even part of being able to forgive. And to me, one of the reasons to believe in God is because of the concept of justice. But I would argue that if there is no God who ultimately judges things, there is no way to actually have justice. Because think about everything that people get away with on this earth. If it's not all set right in eternity at the throne of God, there is no justice. And so, you know, that, that really is foundational, I think, in a sense, that conviction anyway, to actually being able to forgive people in a healthy way that I can give grace knowing that, um, you know, God is going to deal with it and set it right. This is a relationship question, so we know who I'm going to look at for this one. I have been lost for some time and took time off from church and went into a deep depression I'm finding my way back after a three-year relationship I wish I could have kept strong. I've prayed and prayed for God to bring me back on track. My question is, I want to mend my relationship, but I have a feeling in my heart that something says, move on. What should I do? Is it God telling me to move on with my life or something else telling me to give up? Well, this is very specific, so it's hard in this setting, I guess, to give a very specific answer um, and keep it really general, but, you know, I would say that if, typically when we think about depression, we just think of it being its own thing, but really depression is always a symptom of something else, and we need to figure out what that something else is to be able to realize how we approach it then. You know, sometimes depression can, can be manifested because of uh, physical reasons or spiritual reasons. Um, you know, we just talked about forgiveness. Sometimes, you know, we can, we can find ourselves in a place of depression, you know, because of just something horrible that's happened to us um, and wrestling, you know, like we see David with, you know, I'm, I'm feeling these ways and I'm in this place and, and I don't know what to do with this. Um, you know, it can be because of emotional reasons or it can be a combination of all of those things going on at the same time. And so this, this seems to be like connected to a relationship. And so, you know, we, we sort of have to have a, a good criteria for relationships. First of all is, you know, is this relationship are, are both people in the relationship believers? Because we have a clear answer in Scripture to what we do with that. Because if, you know, the Bible says clearly, do not, you know, join yourself, yoke yourself together with an unbeliever. Um, is this a relationship that's a marriage 
or not? Because so, there's different answers with that because um, of how we view marriage and, and um, the permanence of marriage. You know, was there um, abuse or unhealth in this relationship? And so the, the way that you answer all of these questions determine, I guess, whether you try to restore this relationship or if, you know, some of those answers are, well, this was, you know, this relationship was with an unbeliever, this relationship was not marriage, and it was unhealthy, and there was abuse, and there was this, then, you know, that sort of, in and of itself, kind of provides the answer for you um, based on some of those questions. So I think that we have to sort of break it down, and, and you know, that would be something that maybe talking through that one-on-one -on -one with someone to, to, for, you know, that person to know more the specifics of things and be able to walk through that with you, I think, would be important. Yeah, I would recommend the person make an appointment with Lori. And, I mean, I would say if you wanted to do that, you could text that if you would be willing to do that to the same number you sent the question to, and it could get passed on to Lori and worked out from there. So next I have kind of a series. They, they are from different people, but they kind of go along the same uh, line of things. So I'm going to start with, this is a two-part question, and then there will be a couple questions following that that um, build on it, I guess you'd say. Does the Bible give clarity on where babies slash children go if they pass away? And how do we talk about this with those who have experienced this? Well, I mean, the Bible talks in different places about the age of accountability or, you know, being able to, like we talked about with, um, you know, being able to accept Christ um, and make that personal choice. Um, and we know that what we believe is that, you know, babies really haven't come to the place where they can do that yet. Um, and so it's one of those things where we can, again, fall back on God's character and um, the fact that he's just. And I think that all of those questions kind of tie into this one and how we look at this. Um, and I, I have worked with parents who have lost children um, at a variety of ages, um, all the way from, you know, in the womb through, um, you know, young adulthood, being older and stuff. And, and you know, that, that is a question that has come up. And I think that, you know, when we're attending to that, we have to be sensitive to where people are with those things. And um, I think if a child is not at the age where they can fully accept Christ, then somehow God has worked that out in a just and loving and fair way because that's who he is. Um, and so, you know, as we minister to parents, we are providing truth because sometimes when people are grieving, what we want to do is just make them feel better. And in doing that sometimes, I mean, we for maybe our own sake too, as we kind of rush <laughs> to to come up with a you know a good answer or not, maybe just sit with them and grieve with them and hurt with them and listen to those questions and wrestle through those things with them and realizing the pain that's there and um, you know the hope that we have in death is that you know those of us that are in Christ 
um, that, you know, we, that's not the end. It's really, honestly, the beginning. And that's, what, that's why we grieve, just like the world grieves, the Bible says, but yet we grieve with hope. And, but we've got to make sure, you know, when we're talking to people that we're not just not throwing out hope, but that the hope is actually in Jesus and the hope is in who he is and what he's done, not just random hope. So if we're going to adopt the age of accountability into our theology, why as evangelicals do we take such a hard stance on abortion? Termination of a baby could be viewed as an act of love, guaranteeing entrance to heaven. On the flip side, statistics for an unwanted baby are not on the child's side in becoming a believer later in life. If we use sanctity of life as a defense, why as evangelicals are we so slow to literally follow Jesus' command to turn the other cheek in the areas of personal defense or military might? You may have to repeat some of that. So um, just to kind of maybe connect what Lori said to this question. You know, you, you have a text in uh, 2 Samuel of where after David's sin with uh, Bathsheba, the baby dies. David's in mourning and, 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 and just praying, seeking God for the child to live. But then after he dies, you know, people think he's like just going to go nuts, his servants and whatever. But, but it's like once a child dies, he's like he seems more normal and they're confused. And he says, well, you know, the child can't come back to me, but I'll go to him. And, you know, it, it's not an absolute thing that proves all babies go to heaven, but it would seem to point in that direction of that's what's happening, at least in this case. But, um, you know, it, it, as far as, as the question, if the idea is, if the assumption is that every child, you know, every aborted baby or, if you know, a two-year-old or whatever, uh, you know, goes to heaven, should you, you know, kill them to assure that they go to heaven instead of going to hell? Well, um, you know, I think the, the ultimate problem with that is you're kind of playing God at that point, and you're trying, supposedly doing a good thing by doing a bad thing. I mean, you're disobeying God. You're taking a prerogative into your hands that you don't have. And if God's sovereign, you know, life and death is up to him, salvation's up to him, uh, heaven and hell is up to him. And so, you know, we, we have no right uh, to do that. I mean, um, and, and could you read the last part of the question again? I think I got it, but Bear with me, I have to get back to it. I was, um, which, was it basically why, why be against abortion but be okay with military, self-defense, that kind of thing? Yes, so slow to literally follow Jesus' command to turn the other cheek in the areas of personal defense or military might. Well, um, basically, I, I would say some of the wording of the question is not really correct. And, and, and second, that we, you know, we don't follow our own logic. We follow Scripture. 
uh, when it comes to military might, or you know, basically, the Bible says the government does not bear the sword in vain. Uh, I mean, that's what Scripture says. I mean, the biggest purpose of government, biblically, is to protect its citizens from evildoers, whether that be criminals within or enemies from without. That's the government's job. Our job as individuals is to, um, you know, love our neighbor as ourself and to turn the other cheek. But I think when you look at the the passage about turning the other cheek in, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus was saying, uh, you know, that, that's talking about, is really more, I think, about insults than actual physical harm because, you know, somebody's smacking you on, the, on, the, on one side of the face uh, in, in that context in particular, but even today, that's more of an insult than like a, an, an attack, really. And, and, and so, uh, but it's even different. Like if I choose to let somebody beat me up or kill me, that's one thing. But if I choose to, uh, defend my family to defend another person, I think that's even a, a different thing. I mean, the idea of self-defense is, uh, you know, it's not murder if you're taking a life to save a life. You know, that's the difference. The Bible, you know, the, the Ten Commandments don't say you shall not kill. It says you shall not murder. And uh, if somebody's going to die, uh, you know, why would it not be a criminal instead of your child? Or, you know, when in, in, in regard to the death penalty, I know Christians disagree about this, but once again, the government does not bear the sword in vain. Uh, you know, Genesis 9, he who sheds man's blood, you know, his blood shall be uh, shed. And, and I understand there, there needs to be a lot of reform when it comes to this. There's been a lot of injustice there. But, I mean, if it's correctly done, it, it is the administration of justice. I think according to Scripture, it is a God-given prerogative. And, and, and once again, it's, it's not really murder, uh, you know, to kill someone in every case. In, in, in some, you know, military instances, in, in capital punishment, you know, in self-defense or in protecting the life uh, of another. And, and, and I know a lot of this is messy and not clear-cut, especially when it comes to war. But at times, it is pretty clear-cut. I mean, you go back to World War II. Either you could let uh, Adolf Hitler murder more than six million Jews and other people, let him take over the world and impose his vision on the world, or you can step up and, and, and stop that. Some people had to be killed to stop that, but how is that not a righteous thing to do? I mean, I just can't, you know, see that it's not. And the last one in this stream, I think you kind of answered, but I, I do want to just uh, mention... The question is simply, uh, do you think it's right for someone to claim that they're pro-life and be against abortion, but at the same time be pro-death penalty? And I think you kind of just answered that. Um. Yeah, I mean, it, once again, I mean, there, there needs to be, uh, you know, a lot of reform, I think, when it comes to the, to the death penalty. Um, you know, uh, if you haven't seen the movie Just Mercy, I would, I would in, encourage you to watch it. But just, you know, conceptually or biblically, I think the Bible teaches it. But I think to actually answer the question, you know, once again, if, if you're anti-abortion, you're against the killing of an innocent baby. If you're pro-death penalty when it's done correctly, you, you are coming at it from the standpoint of this is justice because this person took another person's life, so they forfeited the, 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 the right to live. And, you know, 
this is a secondary matter. It's not a matter of salvation. So you can feel free to disagree with me. And, uh, you know, if we were having this conversation face to face, we'd still be friends. But I, I think just to answer it from a logical perspective, it, it's two different things. And whether or not you agree or disagree with that logic, it, it's, it's not the same. So by teaching age of accountability, are you saying that God's mercy and grace is applied to children but not unreached people groups who've never had the ability to hear the gospel? Well, you know, there, there's very clear scripture text on that. And, um, you know, I don't usually use the term age of accountability, but um, when, it, when it comes to, you know, people around the world, people who are old enough to, you know, the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. This is Romans 1.18. It says, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, you know, God has, God has never sent an innocent person to hell. God has never sent an ignorant person to hell. Um, We've all sinned. I mean, this is, Romans 1 is very clear about this. We have a conscience. We have a knowledge of right and wrong. And the, and the Bible goes on to say in Romans chapter 1 that the creation reveals the creator and that, um, you know, through the witness of creation, we can know that we're guilty and that, you know, ultimately our sin, according to Romans 1, is that we believe the lie and we've tried to make, put ourselves in the place uh, of God. And, and, and so, you know, every person uh, is guilty. And I think the only question is, uh, you know, if, if someone, if it's someone, if it's a baby who doesn't have, or, or maybe someone who, uh, you know, there's a health issue where they just don't have the mental facilities to be able to comprehend, you know, their own guilt, to be able to, you know, perceive or have any understanding of these things, not just the gospel, but that, you know, a baby can't know there's a God, a baby can't know there's right and wrong, all these kind of things. You know, that's the distinction. Um, if someone is of an age, though, and has the mental facilities to, you know, from their conscience, know there's right and wrong, to know there is some kind of, you know, creator out there, however they define it, and then they are responsible for their actions, which makes them a sinner. And the, the I mean, the ultimate issue is, is if, if someone who is a sinner, is there any way to be forgiven other than through Jesus Christ? And the Bible is very clear that there is no forgiveness apart from the cross. There is no other name by which we must be saved uh, than the, the name of Jesus. And, and, and so, I believe, though, the Bible also teaches is if, you know, God is working in someone's heart and, you know, they're being convicted through their conscience and through creation and they desire to truly know uh, God, that God will find a way to get the gospel to them. You see this in Acts chapter 10 uh, with, with Cornelius, who was a, you know, a, a moral man, a, a spiritual man, but he wasn't a saved man. So God, you know, appeared to Peter in a vision, also, you know, appeared to Cornelius, put it together where the gospel would come to him. And I think in, you know, missiology and the history of missions, you hear a lot of stories like this, including Muslims around the world who are, are you know, seeing Jesus in a, in a dream, uh, you know, those kind of things. And, and, and so, once again, I, I think some of this too comes back to trusting the character of God, uh, you know, that he's both just and righteous and loving and, and, and gracious. But, um, 
you know, we need to take the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, and the seriousness of sin seriously uh, because if we don't take the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin uh, seriously, we will end up on we'll end up compromising on the gospel. We will end up diminishing the cross because if, if we understand that God is both holy and he's love at the same time, we see the only way those characteristics could meet and be fully expressed is by him righteously, justly punishing sin, but then at the same time, uh, him taking that punishment. So he's offering salvation to sinners through his own person, through what he accomplished, as Romans 3.26 says, so God can be just and the justifier of the one who places his faith in Jesus at the same time. As the phrase goes, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. We've all said that before. Do you think that we will get questions like that answered or will it be only worship to God and nothing else will matter, like a party with God or a worship service with him on his throne? Hopefully you'll get a lot better answers than you're getting <laughs> your questions right now. I don't know. What do you all think? Yes. <laughs> Good. Good answer. I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. It's, mm. it's uh, Revelation, what it describes into the world being is, is like God coming to live with earth on us. And it's like earth made perfect the way it was before the fall, uh, which means perhaps we continue with our life. It's just life perfectly lived with, with no more tears and, and, and none of the problems, uh, disease and, and environmental problems. And we're not going to have the, these issues uh, but is it just going to be one long worship service? I don't see evidence of that in the Bible. Uh, perhaps it is, but, but I, I don't see that. When, when you have visions of heaven and angels are worshiping, well, that, that was going on at that moment in, in heaven, but is that what it always is? And I, I'm not sure that, that, uh, that that's the case. Um, God's presence will be there. Uh, we'll know a lot more than we do now. Will all of our questions be answered? You know, God may choose to keep some of his knowledge to himself. He may say, you know what? I'm, I'm, that's not for you to know even now, um, but we'll find out when we get there. Um, I was about to say that I don't know which one of us will find out first. I'm not going to make that guess, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll find out when we get there. My guess is a lot of our questions will disappear at that point. Faith becomes sight. <laughs> okay, and then um, this actually is our final question. Um, and it is, would you share the gospel for anyone listening who may have never heard the greatest news in the world? I did it last time. Lori, Brian, what do you guys want to do it this time? Go for it, Ron. You're the guest. I'll defer to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess this, this is this is I guess the most important question uh, that that we can answer. Not, all of your questions were excellent, uh, but this this is such an important one. Uh, the gospel. Uh, Christ died for us. He died for, for the world. Uh, we are sinners. Every single one of us has disobeyed God. And, and as a result, every single one of us, we've, we've disobeyed God in different ways, uh, but, but we've disobeyed God, all of us nonetheless, and therefore are deserving of God's judgment. Uh, but Jesus came, lived a perfect life, 
the only human ever to live, and Jesus was, was human. He's divine and human both. He was human, and he lived a perfect life, and he suffered an unjust death and, and, and purchased forgiveness of sins for us. He, his, his suffering, uh, he, he received the suffering that, that we deserved. Uh, and, and by faith in Jesus, uh, the righteousness that, that rightfully belongs to Jesus uh, can belong to us. And the relationship with God that we broke because of our sin, that can be restored. And we can spend eternity, whether we get all of our questions answered then or not, we can experience eternity uh, in Christ's presence and in God's presence because of Christ's perfect life and his death and his resurrection. I don't think I mentioned that. That's important as well. He was raised from the dead. Uh, the tomb is empty, as the song said uh, earlier in the service. Uh, the tomb is empty. Christ is raised from the dead, and we can be too one day. Yeah, and, and just to finish up, uh, I just thank you guys for being here. You know, thank you for the questions, whether, you know, here or online. And hope it's been helpful. And, you know, if you have follow-up questions, uh, come talk to us or feel free to, uh, you know, get in touch with us. And, um, you know, we don't claim to have all the answers. And some of this is tough. And some of this, you know, Christians have different viewpoints on. And so that's why I think is, you know, we wrestle with things. It is important to keep these distinctions of primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrine. You know, there, there's things that are, you know, just absolute. And, there, and there's things, well, in, in the word of Scripture in Romans 14, there's, there's disputable matters. And so, you know, some of this certainly would be, uh, you know, we all have certain convictions and, and opinions, but, um, you know, that's not something to divide over. So, uh, you know, if you see election different than me or the rapture of Christ or, uh, you know, capital punishment, some of those kind of things, that, that, that's not stuff for Christians to divide over. I think that's one of our problems today. We need to come together around what's essential and then, you know, try to work through Scripture together to figure out some of these other things that as, as best we can. But, you know, particularly if you have questions about becoming a Christian, baptism, some kind of next step, step spiritually, let us know if you're online. Contact the host, you know, text 94,000, TLC decision. If you're here, do that. Fill out the connection card. Uh, you know, come, to, come talk to one of us. But uh, again, thanks for being here. How about we, uh, we close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed for that, with that. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. God, thank you for your truth. And uh, God, thank you that we can trust you even when we know that we don't have all the answers, uh, that we know that we don't understand everything. We do know that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. But we thank you that in your grace that uh, you've chosen to reveal yourself to us, that you've given us your word, and I pray that you give us a better understanding of it, that you'd renew our minds through it, that you would cause us to walk in it, cause us to walk in the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that this uh, time would uh, just would be helpful and that uh, you would speak to people. And if there are people who, who need to, to come to Christ, that uh, you would just draw them to yourself, people who need to take other spiritual steps, that you give them the grace uh, to do that. And I pray that you would just uh, build us up together in you as a church, that you would grow us and use us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, have a good day.